Hello, everyone. I'm Dr. Candace Creaseman Mowry, and this is Beyond Therapy. It only takes us coming together, making just one life better than we found the flame. Welcome back, everyone. This is Beyond Therapy, and today we're going to be talking about understanding the barriers that Spanish-speaking clients face when seeking counseling. And we're going to be focusing on the need for bilingual counselors and culturally sensitive therapeutic practices. So we're going to be talking about adults and kiddos today. So I'm very excited to be joined by Nikki Birkenstock. Uh, tell you a little bit about her, along with her Spanish minor. She received an intermediate level certificate in Spanish from the University de Zamora, in Mexico during a study abroad experience. And during graduate school, she co-authored a published article in the Journal of College Access about the need for college readiness interventions for Black and Latinx students. As she transitioned into school counseling full-time, she discovered that she was the only employee with Spanish language skills and was used heavily in the schools for interpreting countless conversations, papers, and assignments for families who would otherwise be lost. As she learned more about the culture and needs of these individuals, she realized that it's essential to advocate for more bilingual therapists and mental health providers. So I'm very excited for you to join us today. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Okay, so I want to kind of start just with your personal experience because you've got a unique blend of both school counseling and outpatient-based therapy. So I have zero background in school counseling, so I'm curious if we can start there. Can you share maybe one of the first experiences you had as a school counselor that really highlighted the lack of language resources for Spanish-speaking students? Absolutely. At the beginning of each school year, there's a long period of time where teachers are preparing for the school year, they're preparing for their classes, And a lot of times we have students that aren't identified as being a part of the school yet. So they're kind of in the system, but they're not really assigned to a school. And a lot of my early work as a school counselor was dealing with the families that actually needed to be enrolled and had no idea what to do. And a lot of times there wasn't a lot of messaging going out to those families that were in their native language and language that they could understand. Uh, Usually they would use their own children to translate the material. And a lot of times those words were really big for them. They didn't quite understand or they didn't know how to translate it into Spanish. So the parents would show up to the school just trying to figure out if they could get some sort of information. And a lot of times the teachers or whoever was there to intercept the families had no idea how to communicate either. And there was this huge barrier between the families that were desperately seeking assistance to help with any of the enrollment process and no one there to really assist them either. And there's this um, space that I was able to, to help fill when I would go out to the families and we would talk about, this is the process, this is how you get enrolled. And it was a simple thing that was a huge barrier for a lot of these families who weren't prepared for the year. 
So that's one way I saw myself being a support to the families really right at the beginning. I'm interested when you think about the families that you've worked with, um, how long had they generally been in North Carolina or maybe in an, an English speaking area? Depending on the family, it, it could have been maybe even like a few weeks. It, some of the families that came in um, had just moved. They really weren't even settled into the place they were staying. Um, a lot of our families stayed with other family members. So they might be staying with their cousin, um, siblings, uncles. And it's very common for a lot of the families that we worked with to have multiple families in one home. And so some of the time they were moving in the middle of the year or even right at the beginning. And there's just a lot of time and energy that they're already placing on something that's probably really big for them. And they're not really thinking about school or getting their child enrolled or getting the books or notebooks or the, you know, right colored pencils that they're supposed to have. And so a lot of times these families were coming to the schools for help right at the beginning of the school year, where a lot of our um, more high socioeconomic families had already had all of that time to prepare. So there was a big gap between those families. Mm, Okay. And it sounds like you're also noticing that there is, um, and you can maybe tell me what the overlap is between uh, low socioeconomic status and um, native languages, Spanish does not speak English. Is that a, a... Venn diagram with significant overlap, just a little bit of overlap? I would say probably little to medium overlap. A lot of the families that I worked with were more in the low socioeconomic. So my perspective may be a little bit more leaning toward the low socioeconomic. Um, however, there were there were plenty of high socioeconomic status families that were not English speaking um, as their first language. I, I feel like that's such an important thing to name because I think that shows up a lot too when uh, thinking about being culturally responsive to any sort of black and brown clients is at least on the part of a lot of white counselors, there can be this assumption that they are also low SES. And that is not always accurate. I mean, it, it can be accurate, but that assumption I think has you know some weight to it as well. Um, but yeah, I mean, I just have this image of you know, like a family who has just moved from their native land to this new place. They're trying to figure out how they're, where they're going to live. Maybe they're trying to find employment. They're probably also, if they're undocumented, for example, pretty frightened. And they're also trying to show up for their kids and be prepared, but just hit roadblock after roadblock. I mean, it just sounds so demoralizing, potentially. Right. And there's even those little things we don't think about when what one of our receptionists asked for a driver's license from one of our families. And it's those little simple changes of not assuming those things and asking for identification as opposed to a driver's license and trying to change the mindset there that the assumption needs to change. Mm, that's such a great point because that, that's such a subtle kind of nuance. And I definitely want to circle back to the those even kind of subtle ways that we can make spaces more accessible because uh, I feel like that is definitely a whole conversation in and of itself. Um, shifting back to, okay, you've got this student who is 
their families are trying to help them orient to school. The language barrier is there. So you're helping to interpret. What do the resources look like generally? And maybe we can just sort of speak to Wake County. Uh, What do you know in terms of how many resources are available to Spanish speaking students? I believe that when it comes from the county, they do a typically good job of making sure that there are some resources in Spanish. And it comes really down to the schools, I think. When it, it comes from the county, it's very technical language. And a lot of times the schools don't choose to follow every little thing that the county is saying to a T. And a lot of times the schools will say, yes, the county's doing this and we're going to add this piece on. And a lot of times that's the part where families miss some of that um, additional information. And it really comes down to the teachers that are sending out those um, specific messaging to families. And a lot of times there is absolutely zero deviation from English um, when those messages are sent out. And so when I was trying to push this, we need to provide more resources for families, they would use Google Translate, which is a wonderful first step. But a lot of times those words are not actually translated correctly. And sometimes it's even complicated. It makes the the situation more complicated than it needs to be. And so I would actually uh, have the teachers send me some of the documentation and I would go through and help um, adjust some of those sentences And that is what helped a little bit. But again, there's still this barrier. Uh, So I I do think that Wake County is doing a good job at least providing as much as they can, but they're not able to translate and interpret every little thing that the school is trying to provide. So that's why I do think it's so important to hire bilingual teachers to advocate for mental health, bilingual therapists. It's having more support with that is where we're going to probably make more progress. It's interesting because knowing what I know about Wake County schools, at least, and my assumption is that this would generalize to a lot of schools, not just in North Carolina, but nationally, I feel this real tension between wanting for teachers to step up in terms of their multicultural awareness, assuming that most of the teachers are white, um, and for those teachers who are Spanish speaking or are Latinx to have the resources they need to accommodate. Uh, so this one side of me is like, do your work teachers. And this other side of me is like, oh my gosh, teachers already have so much work and so much of it is unpaid and so much of it is unappreciated. So how responsive have teachers been when you've approached them to say, Hey, we really need to make this, this place more accessible to students who speak Spanish? I've actually been really surprised. A lot of the teachers I've worked with are very receptive. I think teachers have, and I'm speaking kind of generally, um, I'm sure there are some that may not feel this way, but a lot of the teachers really do care about their kids and they want them to get the messaging. The part that I see the disconnect, I think, is actually in the programming. Uh, so the the county may provide all of these translated materials, 
But then when it comes to, hey, we want you to teach this specific lesson, it's not provided in any other language. It's not, um, there's no resources. And that's where the teachers have to do more work. That is unfair. I, I believe is unfair for them to be required to say, hey, we, we have this big push to be multicultural and to um, be aware of, of the different languages. And we're going to do it in this way, but we're not going to provide resources in this way. And I think that's the issue. And I think that's probably across institutions, a big issue in terms of these, these sort of, not necessarily always performative, though oftentimes performative, um, at best kind of superficial attempts to be more inclusive that don't actually create more access beyond the front door. You know, it's the ongoing access is missing. So I'm interested, you know, let's say we're following this family, you've helped them kind of get oriented and have helped with some translation. Um, so if we're following this kind of imaginary student, I guess, <laughs> into the, the classroom and into the school year, um, how does the lack of language resources for a Spanish speaking student, how does that map onto learning outcomes? It is pretty difficult for students to access the same materials that everyone else is accessing, especially um, those who are predominantly Spanish speaking. And I'm thinking of students that are coming straight to North Carolina from pretty much speaking Spanish only their whole life. And then they're coming into an English speaking school and are expected to do the same assignments, to do the same amount of work. Uh, and unfortunately, I have some some really great examples of teachers who have supported those students well, and I have some really upsetting examples of students who were not provided any materials, who were not given the same assignments, or even any assignment. They just were expected to sit there. Um, and that's that's the upsetting part. I think the teachers that are trying really hard they will sit down, I've seen them sit down next to them and really just try to connect with them, whether it's through Google Translate, I've seen teachers communicate that way. Um, that's a great, a great way to kind of try to connect. I, I've seen that effort. Where there's the issue, though, is when you have those students who are just seen as they're not capable of participating in this assignment, so I'm not going to put them through it. And they end up sitting there. And that's that's the difficult part for some of those students. I think it really depends on the teacher and if they're willing to put in that work. I'm interested, especially as you're talking about how some teachers will try to translate the material. Um, what do you see as being the goal? And I'm sure this varies from teacher to teacher, but is the goal to get students to be able to understand material in English? Or is there some room for students to be able to work the material in their native language? What? Yeah, so there is a program, at least in Wake County, called ESL. Um, English is a second, or yeah, English is a second language. And those students, so I'm speaking from my experience. I was new and coming into the school counseling role. I had never worked in a school before. I was never a teacher prior to 
being in this position. And so a lot of the programs that were provided were very new to me. I had to learn a lot of what they were and how they operated. And having the background that I do working with Spanish-speaking families, it was extremely important to me to see what is, how does this operate? What is going on? How do they um, work with these families? And I was pretty surprised to hear that the ESL program is actually just taking these students who are Spanish-speaking or emergent bilinguals, so they're learning English, taking them out of the classroom, putting them in a smaller group, and still working on English work. So there is no translation or interpretation into their native language at all. So it's just like immersion into English? Yes. Yes. So the ESL teachers do not speak the language. They typically are English-speaking teachers, and they support the students by focusing on things like phonics and grammar and really going back to those sight words and things like that. Um, It's very interesting. It's all in English. There's no um, interpretation or translation for their language at all. And that was surprising to me because I, I don't know if I ever would have thought that that is how um, that would work, but that is exactly what's happening. So a lot of these students who I thought maybe they'd go in and they'd finally get to kind of connect with other peers that speak their uh, native language or they have those connections. They really don't practice that or um, use those connections in any way. Now, is this something that their families consent to uh, in terms of I have decided this is the uh, direction I want my child's learning to go in? Or is this something that is just if you don't speak English, you go to ESL? It depends. I, I believe that there's a testing process. So the families will identify their student as having English as a second language. So they will put, um, for instance, a Spanish speaking family may put Spanish as their first language. And the school will take that information and will then assess the level of English that the student will speak. And based on that assessment, they'll reach out to the family and say, your student qualifies to be in our program. This will assist them in completing the work that they're doing in class with the exception that they're going to be missing some of the material that they're supposed to be doing in class. So the assumption is that they're getting the material done in the ESL program. I don't know how much is being actually completed versus not, but I'm not super familiar with how that works. It just seems very interesting to me. I'm I'm still processing what that looks like. It's interesting to me that we're not doing more work trying to help our English speaking students learn more languages that we're kind of forcing families to choose this option or they're not going to be, quote, successful uh, in the school. And I think that's really discouraging, honestly. Okay, so we talked about a little bit about learning outcomes. So we've got this sort of uh, forced disengagement from the material that could happen in a lot of different ways. Uh, How does the lack of language resources then map onto what are perceived as or labeled disciplinary issues? Good question. A lot of our disciplinary issues, uh, we were thankful, thankfully um, blessed with a, a 
assistant principal that spoke Spanish. And so I saw it both from the perspective of having uh, no Spanish speaking uh, individuals besides myself in my first year as a school counselor, and then comparing what it looked like to have someone who actually was there to work with students who may be referred for disciplinary reasons who did speak Spanish. And I saw a huge difference in the connection with the kids and even the actual projection of the repeated um, actions and behaviors. And as a counselor, a lot of times we, in a school, we won't deal with discipline. It's a very important, um, according to the American School Counseling Association, that school counselors do not have participation in the disciplinary process. That kind of hurts the therapeutic relationship and can be um, hurtful rather than helpful. So a lot of times I was very strong about not kind of responding to that. There, however, was then a need to explain to our students who were predominantly Spanish speaking, um, if they were confused as to what was happening or what was going on, why they were being punished or why this was going on and happening. Um, and I'll give an example that was actually the student uh, spoke English and the mom spoke Spanish. She knew very little English. And the difficulty in that situation was that the mom was confused as to why her daughter was being punished or being uh, disciplined for some of the actions that she was doing in school. And it was pretty disheartening because the teacher was upset. And, and understandably, in, in the situation, she was upset about the behavior, but the the conveying of information with the tone and with uh, these words that this mom who spoke very little English could not understand. Um, there was a big misunderstanding. This, this whole situation went way bigger than it should have been. And I came in and I helped interpret and translate the texts that were being sent back and forth and ended up being okay. But I think a lot of those types of things are actually seen as a lot bigger and these parents who may be so confused as to what's going on and not sure how to help their kids can't communicate with the teacher or can't understand. So there's a couple examples of how there's just lack of communication efficiency with the either the administration to the student or with the teachers and administration to the parents. It's just... In every situation that I've been in, it's been complicated uh, when it's being done in English. Well, and that feels like such a good point that being able to communicate with the student is one thing, uh, but being able to communicate with the families is just as important. Um, I'm interested if the the vice principal, is he Spanish speaking in white or Spanish speaking in Latino? He is Spanish speaking in white. Yes. Gotcha. He actually wrote um, an article. He's pursuing his uh, his doctorate right now in education, I believe. And he has written a couple of articles that I'll send, with, send to you later. Uh, but it's really addressing the programs that address Spanish-speaking families, which ESL is included in that. And I think it's a really great perspective as someone who is Spanish-speaking and white how they perceive some of those programs to be effective or not. 
what's your sense of representation in the staff of Latinx professionals? In the staff that I was in, I was the only Spanish-speaking individual in the school uh, the first year. In the second year, there were three of us who spoke Spanish, and that was significantly easier. And I will say I was still extremely busy with doing work of interpreting and translating, even with two other individuals there, showing how important and, and how much work needs to be done um, in that way. I mean, I'm, I'm connecting with um, some of the references to like a culturative stress, um, it just the stress associated with trying to integrate into a new culture, um, how it would certainly overcome some barriers to have Spanish speaking white folks. And it, not that the Latinx population is a monolith by any stretch, but I, I wonder if, you know, representation, how far that goes. So like, for example, if a student is from Guatemala and their teacher or some staff member that they're connected to um, is from Mexico, um, how much, connection there would be there, or if really language is sort of the essential piece that might connect subgroups of, of Latinx students. Yeah, I wouldn't be able to speak to knowing if the representation of a specific country or specific dialect of Spanish would be as powerful or not as just being able to speak Spanish. Uh, I will say when I did speak Spanish to students, they were pretty surprised to to tell that I was like, oh, you can, you can understand me. You, you can talk with me. The excitement that they had though, when they heard their, they were able to explain. I mean, some of the kids that I talked to would tell me a story in English. And then when I said, can you tell me that in Spanish? Can you talk to me then? There was so much more detail in so much more color and, and brightness in what they were sharing. Uh, it was so much easier for them to explain things in that in in that way. And it was sometimes really, I got really joyful. And then sometimes I, I got sad because I realized that they were holding all of that back. Yeah, because no outlet. You know, where would they put it if no one else was going to understand them? Yeah. And I'm just thinking about how significant that would be um, for across a lot of developmental domains, you know. So what ages were you working with predominantly in the schools? In the schools, I worked with kindergarten through fifth grade, so typically five to 12 year olds. Uh, however, a lot of times I saw myself working with the teenagers, middle schoolers who would come pick up their kids, their um, younger siblings. Mm-hmm. And the parents who would pick up their their kids and and would come to the school and may have a question after school. So I'd say I worked predominantly with the kindergarten through fifth graders, but I spoke with multiple um, groups of people, Mm -hmm. different ages. Yeah. So thinking about how having to or, or being very restricted in how you can express yourself during these really formative years. Um, did you notice any impact on development with particular kids who did not speak English? I would probably say it wasn't extremely noticeable to me. There were a lot of assumptions I could make 
um, for instance, the the one that comes to mind is the student who was not provided any materials for class. Uh, and I did not find this out. She didn't tell me. Um, I think she was embarrassed. She didn't tell me until the end of the year when I came to see her presentation. Uh, and she was not provided the access to the materials and had nothing. And um, I confronted the teacher about that. And the teacher said, she's no longer a teacher, by the way. Oh, okay. She just, yeah. She just said, oh, I just didn't think she could do it. And it was extremely upsetting to me because the student could completely and 100% do the assignment. And if there was communication there, there would have been a difference. But the student didn't feel comfortable trying to communicate with her teacher. The teacher didn't feel comfortable trying to communicate with the student. There was this lack of access. And I definitely can see how that would impact the student moving forward as she's she was in third grade at the time. So she's definitely aware of what's going on. And she's definitely um, taking in that that message. Yeah, I mean, the trickle down of that, not necessarily the trickle down, but if we sort of project into the future of this student's academic career, you know, just how impactful and how negatively impactful it would be to start to see yourself as incapable, you know, because then you don't try new things. And then you also are getting feedback from your environment. People are not investing resources in you. You're not being called to the guidance counselor's office to talk about what colleges you're going to try to get into. So, so much implicit knowledge ends up being lost. So, so many opportunities are withheld when a student early on is identified as someone who's not capable as a function of language. Okay, so if we think about how, again, I'm kind of transferring what I know about how black and brown kids kind of language aside are generally more likely to have their behavior, their school struggles, however they may show up, um, misdiagnosed, miscategorized and, and disciplined instead of the intervention being more treatment focused or support focused. Um, so from a mental health standpoint, uh, what sorts of misdiagnoses do you find showing up that are more likely a function of this language barrier and lack of adequate resources? I could talk all day about all of the um, things that are diagnosed, misdiagnosed in our Black students, especially our boys, um, but to focus on our Latinx students, a Latinx students, I really think about not necessarily diagnoses in this specific example, but the discipline that we talked about, and then eventually repeated discipline becoming an assumption of a diagnosis or of some sort. Uh, there are many students who live in these big families and they all live in the same house. And a lot of the time in their culture, even in their family culture, the male is seen as a very important figure. And so there is this belief that the male is, is in superior power, uh, or it's least projected into the kids. The kids will come in and uh, I see a lot of times our male Latinx students will sometimes 
maybe look like they're being disrespectful to their female teacher. And they may uh, say things that are, are perceived as disrespectful. And a lot of times, and this is something that the male assistant principal was, was sharing with me based on his experience and his, his learning. And that a lot of times when you may perceive a, a male Latinx student as being disrespectful, it's actually just a process of, of them learning their own family structure and their response to how they have seen their family grow. And so a lot of times those students were specifically called out or um, maybe focused on as being trouble students or students who were being disciplined all the time based on their behavior instead of actually addressing the reason why they're, they're responding that way or having a conversation about what that looks like to someone who's white and a female versus maybe someone who is Latinx and male. And those conversations don't happen as often as they should in order to see the behavior as the cultural response of their family versus a behavior that needs to be disciplined. Mm, gosh, there's some real interesting intersectional stuff going on there. I'm, I'm thinking particularly if we translate this into like a high school setting, you know, so you've got maybe this white female teacher, you've got this adult looking Spanish speaking male in a brown body, potentially, most likely. Um, and yeah, how how many defenses could go up quickly that result in a really bad outcome? Um, and I, that's just so fascinating to think about how it, it is totally possible, though, if we have that background knowledge that, yeah, this is probably how, how dad or some patriarch within the family is running things. Um, and that's totally their business, right? So to name that this is just modeling as a rather than uh, overt disrespect. How then do we, so even if a teacher knows that, and we'll again assume this is a white female teacher, um, how do we support the teacher too in terms of what should she be doing to address that behavior that would be more culturally responsive? Yeah, great question. Uh, a lot of times we saw, and, and it's in research as well, that those relationships you build at an early start, even at an early age, and since I work with kids, the research focuses on being very specifically intentional about building close relationships with students. And in this way, it's actually going to benefit them and, and they will see that respect because they know that you care about them and they know that you want them to be successful. Where I've seen the disrespect happen is when they don't feel, they don't feel respected or they don't feel seen. And I see it less often when they feel loved and cared for by their teacher versus when they feel disconnected or kind of called out or pointed out. Um, often it gets significantly worse when they feel like they're not being heard or they're not being seen. Mm-hmm. Which, I mean, that feels like something that has been super critical just for my own therapeutic approach is to just really baseline assume that no behavior comes from nowhere, as opposed to personalizing behavior. This person feels this way about me. You know, it's like, no, I probably have very little to do <laughs> with this person's behavior. Um, 
So let's maybe switch gears a little bit. So moving things out of the school setting and into um, an outpatient mental health setting. Uh, so going back to this barriers to community mental health services article, um, the authors mentioned that there are really low rates of service utilization across health domains, including mental health. So if you could just sort of paint me a picture of what sorts of systemic, institutional, cultural barriers are at play. Um, and I say barriers as if the assumption is that people should be accessing these services. So let's even put that on the table as like, we don't need to assume that mental health services are the only way for people to get treatment. So like, what's, what's the gap, I guess, between this population and mental health services? Right. I, I know a lot of uh, Latinx counselors that live in California and they're based there, they work there and they have a very large population of Latinx um, individuals who are seeking mental health. And I don't know if that's because there's an access to it that is just very evident and very marketed and people know about it, or if there's just such an influx of groups that speak Spanish in that area that they have naturally, there has been mental health facilities that have been created there. Uh, so not knowing whether which one came first, I don't know if that same situation is happening in North Carolina, where there is such a, an awareness of how many people here speak Spanish or how many people need access to um, mental health. We're not aware of it because we're not really paying attention to it, in my opinion. I don't think we, we really know how many people are looking or not. Uh, and so it's hard to know whether we focus on talking about if, it's, if there's a need versus do we have the providing, are we providing the access to it? So I'll go about it from both angles. According to the, the need, thinking about it in that way, a lot of families are first-generation students in college. A lot of them, um, we talk about that a lot in college counseling, about how a lot of our Latinx students typically could be first-generation. And that comes with a lot of mental health needs when they're learning new things, they're being exposed to new people. So to us, to know that that's happening, that there's a lot of first generation students, especially in a, a state like North Carolina, where there's lots of colleges and a lot of people are coming to go to those colleges. There's the assumption that I can make that there's probably a lot of people who are coming here to go to college. When we talk about like the access that we have, I don't really know. I, I don't think I'm aware if we have a lot of access. I know that in just my personal, what I've experienced, I don't see a lot of Spanish resources. I don't see a lot of Spanish speaking therapists. Uh, so it's, it's hard to know, honestly. I know that's a long answer to just say, I'm not sure, but I don't know. Well, I mean, I super connect with that. And especially when I think of it from my own white privilege, I am so siloed off from community, from Latinx communities, from communities that speak Spanish, that I, of course, have no idea what the need would be. Uh, and I also feel relatively incapable of meeting whatever need since I don't speak Spanish. Um, so that 
And then if we kind of multiply that times at least the counseling field as a whole, you've got a whole lot of white women, predominantly white women, um, where it would be very easy to have no idea. So I wonder if the scope of the access, if there is an issue, which I'm sure there is, um, it's not something that's on the radar of counseling programs, of counseling supervision. You know, this just another example of the way that this that white privilege just kind of is so insidious in terms of how it separates us from care. When you think about work that you have done in outpatient settings with folks who speak Spanish, um, what are some of the unique aspects that you've noticed of working either with these children, with these families? What have you learned in that process that you now are able to apply? A lot of what I've learned working with Spanish-speaking families, I would say a lot of I haven't had a Spanish-speaking client yet. A lot of the families that I've worked with, though, are predominantly Spanish-speaking, but do have English-speaking um, like in their family. So maybe it's a dad or a mom or um, one of them may speak English. A lot of what I've noticed is the importance of family in, in those relationships and a lot of times individualism, which is something that I believe as a Western culture and society, we prioritize and we put on this pedestal of we need to be individuals and we don't need to be, you know, relying on anyone else. That's not necessarily always adopted in these families. And that was an assumption that I had made I put an importance of you need to stand up for yourself and be your own person. And these things that I, I find important may not be practiced in those families. And, and this again is, is dependent on the family that you're working with, but it was important to me to realize that my assumption of what was important to an individual may not be how they were raised or where they're coming from. And that was a big shift for me to be more aware as a therapist of where the, the individual, the client is coming from and their family. And I didn't know that until I had those conversations with the parents because I typically work with kids and those kids, yeah, family is important. They love their family. They love to spend time with them. Those messaging, that messaging doesn't always come out in those conversations. But when I spoke with the family I realized how important being a part of a family, being um, relying on a family, sharing things with family. There's there's a line of where we can be as therapists to support, but it's important to at least know that those families may have that big um, importance on that. Mm-hmm. That's I, I think about that from the perspective of two of sort of the ways we educate counselors in really outdated theories and how those embody these principles of individualism. Um, you know, particularly I'm just thinking about family systems, for example, which is where this principle of enmeshment comes from and how easy it is for a client who comes from a collectivist family centered culture to be perceived as lacking boundaries as, you know, being, emotionally delayed or stunted as a function of enmeshment, right? So we pathologize that. Um, so yeah, I mean, it sounds like it's been really helpful for you to stay flexible in terms of what you 
conceptualize as actually being pathological. Right. And that's what I encourage other people to do if they don't have any Spanish speaking abilities, they haven't learned Spanish, they haven't been around Spanish speaking families, is just to remind yourself that you are sitting across from a different group every time, no matter if the person looks exactly like you, there's, it's always a multicultural relationship. And just to remind yourself that you can't just assume, you know, what this person needs, um, but getting to know the person building rapport, understanding where they came from in their culture uh, and having more cultural conversations is extremely important. Which I totally agree. And I'm thinking too about how being able to assess the ways that our practices may not be meeting clients where they are in terms of their cultural identities really requires a capacity for introspection, requires an ability to confront our own whiteness, to confront our own privilege. I'm curious, and this is a really big question, but what has that looked like for you in terms of what has facilitated your ability to know when you're making assumptions based on your own cultural identity? It is a big question. I think for me, I have really spent a lot of time with Spanish speaking individuals. I have a lot of friends that speak Spanish and uh, just growing up with them and being close with them and listening to their stories and realizing how different my upbringing was and how I didn't have those same barriers. And I didn't have to worry about whether or not I understood an assignment because I couldn't understand language. Uh, And then another extremely huge exposure to my whiteness was when I uh, studied abroad in Mexico and I stayed with a family there that spoke only Spanish. And I still was looked at as this this person that was coming in, they were all excited to see me. And everyone that I walked by was just like fawning over someone who's white in this area. And it felt very different. And it was just people were looking, people were coming up and talking to me. And it was just a totally different experience than I have when I walk down the street in North Carolina versus when I'm in a place where I look different. And I think being exposed to being in a group and in an area where I wasn't alike to everyone else made me more aware of how someone may feel coming into um, North Carolina where they don't look the same. And we're all looking at them and we're all like, oh, can you say something in Spanish? And how, how offensive and awkward that could maybe be for that person um, that we may not realize. Mm-hmm. I'm interested, especially as you're kind of connecting the empathy aspect of being someone who is obviously different from the people that you're surrounded by. What did that feel like for you such that you connect with those same feelings? Like you mentioned, it felt awkward. What else showed up in that experience of being very different? I think for me, I remember being so fearful of not being able to express my needs in, in Spanish. I knew Spanish enough to get by, but there were moments where I couldn't think of what to say and I couldn't figure out how to communicate 
to the family I was living with. And I was, I mean, we were in Western Mexico and I was in college and I had no cell phone service. I couldn't figure out anything. I couldn't communicate. And I remember feeling so fearful of not being able to say what I needed to say or ask for what I needed, uh, trying so hard. I, I remember it being really difficult to communicate my needs and knowing that what I was saying may not have actually been what I meant or really wasn't exactly what I needed. And I think about that a lot when I'm speaking with Spanish speaking families or they're trying to communicate their needs to an English speaking person that they are probably doing their very best to just get the bare minimum of what they need. Uh, but it's not necessarily all of it. That feels like such a, a kind of tender place to go, you know, is connecting with the the fear that can show up when you're not sure you're going to be able, one, to ask for what you need. And then two, when we add the the racism and nationalism piece to it, even if you do get out what you need to possibly be met with anger, rejection, dismissal, you know, all of these other layers that come with being in a black or brown body. Um, yeah, I mean, that sounds like that's a, a really tender point of empathy to touch into and to try to engage with someone around. Um, I'm also curious, especially whenever I'm talking to other white counselors, you know, if there were particular points, and we'll maybe be kind of specific to to language, um, particular points where it was difficult, where you felt resistance to understanding or encountering your own privilege. Places where there was maybe like, I mean, I don't really have it that good, <laughs> you know? I think probably when I was in Mexico and they were telling me how great I had it in America. And I was just like, no, it's fine. You guys have it great. You know, and I'm sitting there and I realized I said, I was literally thinking that I do remember thinking like, this is awesome. I'm in Mexico. And I'm like, I actually had the ability to fly to Mexico to live with a family to study Spanish, and I'm sitting here telling them that they they have it great here and wasn't really recognizing the opportunity that I literally was in at the moment <laughs> talking with them. And they didn't have air conditioning. They didn't have running water. They I, It was a very, very um, cool experience. But the fact that I can say that and then come back to air conditioning and running water is, is the part that I recognized in myself that I was, I was like, this is a vacation for me and this is their life. And I didn't necessarily recognize that uh, right away. And looking back, I'm like mortified that I was so oblivious to those experiences and, and just kind of not really thinking hard about it. Yeah. I think that's so interesting. And I, I connect with that too, of coming up in a fairly low SES from a fairly low SES background is how protective we can be of our, our suffering. <laughs> it's like white people can turn anything into the suffering Olympics, you know? And on the one hand, th there's like a get over it aspect, right? Because 
there's so, it could just be so much worse. Um, and on the other hand, I think that we it's maybe important that we can show up to, yes, there are things about my life that are hard and there's so much privilege I've been afforded being in this particular body. Um, but yeah, just we cling to our suffering identities, I think, pretty hardcore, even in the face of way worse suffering. Yeah. Then there, I guess there's this other kind of conversation around do we get to name what a bad life looks like? You know, so is not having running water or air conditioning, is that kind of the worst thing ever? I don't really know. I mean, part of me wants to honor if that's hard, it's hard. And then the other part is saying, well, but I mean, it seems hard to me. <laughs> you know? Yeah, I think about that with our families that live together, all of the, the cousins and the siblings. And I personally, the way I was raised, the way I grew up, I would I would be like, all right, it was nice to see you for an afternoon, but I'm going to go to my own nice bed and you know, be there. And so I can sometimes perceive this house full of people as being just not what I would want to do, you know, and then I talk with them and they're just so excited to be with their cousin. They're so excited to be with their family. And that's so important to them. And they get to live with their aunts and their grandmas and their grandpas. And it's so, so normal for them. And I am sitting here like thinking that that would not be great. And it really is something that they really value and, and hold in high um, regard. Yeah, there's so many, I guess, both ands in our conversation today, you know, in, in terms of what sounds like very skillful responsiveness on your part to say, yeah, this is, I wouldn't want, you know, I need, I need to sleep alone, <laughs> you know, as just your personal preference and honoring that that's a cultural aspect of what your students are dealing with. And also acknowledging that it's an, likely a, a financial necessity too, you know, as a function of all of the sort of barriers there are to fair and equal wages for these folks. So I, I find that that can really turn into a dialectical dilemma for me, um, that I, I just have to consciously keep making room for both to be true. If we circle back uh, briefly to ways that you feel like maybe both school counselors and counselors in outpatient settings um, can make spaces more accessible uh, for folks who are Spanish speaking. What sorts of ideas come to mind around that? There's a couple of ways I, I would say for both. I think when you're in the school, there are bound to be individuals that don't speak English as their first language that are learning English or emergent bilinguals. Uh, these are definitely great opportunities for you to make connections with those, those students. And if you don't speak Spanish or you have really no exposure to Spanish, it may just look like spending time with them in whatever way that you can, whether that's just sitting with them in an ESL class. If you're in the school and you want to go visit their ESL classroom, there's going to be students that not only speak Spanish, but may speak multiple languages. And you can connect with all of those students just by being present, just by being there and 
talking with the ESL teachers to know what their needs are and maybe the connections that they're trying to make with families that are difficult. And you can support them in that way, knowing maybe they need clothing for winter. Maybe they uh, need access to food resources and you can provide those those opportunities by connecting with the social worker. So those are some great ways that you can connect with the families and the students without actually having the ability to speak Spanish or any of the languages that your students speak. And in private practice, I think it looks like connecting with Spanish-speaking therapists that are near you and making sure that you have strong connections with other practices who are providing bilingual uh, services so that you can refer people if they do come to you and, and you can kind of make those connections there and learn about the needs of the community through them. That feels like such a, a great way of acknowledging that there is this bigger community to be in touch with, you know, that this is not just a in your office kind of situation. Uh, and I love too, that you're, you're talking about connecting with um, Latinx therapists, you know, and providers in the area that feels like that also speaks to some of the systemic barriers, you know, to higher education, to even having Latinx counselors available in a community. If you think about, we'll go like real off the rails here, life motto, what words of wisdom do you live by? Wow, that's deep. And <laughs> random, right? <laughs> yes. Um, you know, honestly, recently, joy comes to mind and something that, I don't know if it's a great life motto, but it's a good reminder to me, but comparison is the thief of joy. And it's just a, it may not be necessarily a good life motto per se, but if I repeat that self to repeat that to myself as much as I need to, I think that it's really great advice and love to, to say that to myself. I'm trying to think if there's any other life motto that I can think of. Right on the spot. Right, right. <laughs> I feel like I've been asked this before and I had a good answer. It's not coming to mind. Well, it's sure. really a dirty yeah. trick because me personally, like if you ask me my favorite song, my favorite color, favorite movie, I immediately forget all colors, all <laughs> movies, all songs. So Yes. Yeah. yeah. Like what are words? I don't know. Well, I totally, I, I super connect with this idea. Comparison is a thief of joy. Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think it, it speaks to how, how much craving um, can just really mess with our wellness. Yeah. I think I've been really aware of codependency recently and just in my own clients and in my own life. And so that has been something that's been really loud right now for me and comparison, especially with the world of social media and everything. And I think that that is it's important to compare because if we don't, we're just going to be stuck in our own silos, but understanding that if we put so much value in someone else's things and someone else's status, that it can definitely steal the joy that we could have. Well, Nikki, I am so thankful for your time today. I have so enjoyed this conversation. It's, you know, introduced kind of a, a world that I'm not super familiar with in terms of school counseling and, 
uh, Spanish speaking group. So I'm just very appreciative of your time yeah. today. Yeah. Thank you for having me. It was a lot of fun. That's a wrap, friends. I would love to hear from you all, though, if you are a Latinx or Spanish-speaking counselor. What challenges have you faced in working with Latinx communities? Send us a message or leave a comment on Instagram or Facebook at Beyond Therapy Podcast. If you're looking for some NBCC-approved continuing education credit for listening to this podcast, visit beyondtherapy.thinkific.com and create a student profile. Just listen, take a test, and get CEs. Until next time, this is Dr. Candace Creaseman-Mowry signing off. Beyond Therapy is brought to you by Creaseman Counseling, mental wellness for all. Visit www.creaseman-counseling.com for more information. Thanks for listening.